Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Stack Overflow podcast, a place to talk all things software and technology. I am your host, Ben Popper, Director of Content here at Stack Overflow. Today, I will be speaking with James Evan, who is a co-founder and CTO over at Command Bar. There are a lot of products on the market these days that want to assist you, the developer, with what you do, an AI-powered assistant of sorts. We've talked about this with a bunch of different folks on the show, from AWS Code Whisperer to Duet to people at Replit. But I don't think we've really spoken about this with a with a startup. So we're excited for today. James, welcome to the Stack Overflow podcast. It's like to be here. Thanks for the invite. So give folks a little background. Um, how did you get into the world of software and technology? And then what led you to the role you're at today? Yeah, for sure. A kind of fun party trick is I can actually date when I started programming because it was the day that CSS 2.1 uh, came out. <laughs> An auspicious day. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Dated myself in the process. I think it was February 2004. And I think like a lot of computer kids of the era, I kind of like grew with the internet. So in 2004, it was like web design. I kind of fell in love with HTML and CSS, which you don't hear a lot <laughs> these days. The next thing that you know, the cool kids were doing was like JavaScript-based, or rather Flash-based initially games, and then JavaScript-based games mm-hmm. in the browser, and then kind of moved on oh, to... Yeah you know, full stack apps. I remember hosting an Apache server on Rackspace like back in like 2008. Nice. Java applets, the future, the future of games. Yeah. It felt magical. And then transitioned to AWS. I think my first enc- like real encounter with AI was in like 2015. I was in college studying computer science. And this was like the first neural net kind of mainstream, I mm-hmm. guess, bonanza. There were probably bonanzas beforehand that I wasn't aware of. Or live yeah. for, um, but yeah. everyone was using neural nets for image classification. I think 2013, right? Yeah, 2013 was the first big image net breakthrough. Yeah, and then that's by right. 2015, it was starting to be more widespread. And I was reading there was a big New York Times article over the past weekend, you know, about Elon Musk and Larry Page and all the different players who sort of you know were seeing this stuff coming and helped form OpenAI, yada yada. And I remember that I was at the Verge as a journalist at the time, and I went to the Singularity Conference. And I didn't realize at the time, but you know, a, a lot of the same people were there, um, you know, sort of wondering where this was all headed. I remember it felt like biology. I remember people were publishing these papers, basically just like, "Oh, we used a, a neural net for X task and found these like interesting properties," and just it felt like right. kind of a very different type of uh, paradigm shift. Yeah, we've been talking about this a lot on the show, and like working with LLMs, it's more practice than theory. It's like. Right. And and I mean, what do you what do you do when you're you know fine tuning and setting weights and model training? You're poking and prodding and hoping you can totally. optimize what comes out the other end, right? Like it's not an empirical process of like, I mean, there are, there are algorithmic improvements. There's the advent of the transformer or something, but you know, like in the actual you know creation of a new model and then and then pushing it to do something, often there's a lot of black box work happening. Totally. I mean, it feels very similar today as it felt in like 2014, 2015. Where- we had this sort of breakthrough and then people were poking and prodding it to see what it was capable of. Back then it was all image classification right. and now it's all language, right? Right. Yeah, I guess image classification was a big breakthrough and then NLP was a big breakthrough and then games. Games were the one that got everybody's attention. Oh yeah, right. That was like the AlphaGo was the first mainstream one, right? 
Yeah, and Liberatus that bested folks at poker, and you know, then they beat StarCraft, and those those were kind of like the oh, milestones yeah, yeah, they were setting. Anyway, to kind of zoom forward to today, it's kind of funny, like thinking back to, you know, what software was like in 2004, there's obviously been, you know, some areas of our kind of computing lives that have come unimaginably far, like the infrastructure we host software mm. on, architecture, like we have APIs now, just what, you know, we have so many more software tools, there's so many more software companies. Right. But something that always kind of flummoxed me and is kind of the basis for mm. Command Bar, which I'm sure we can talk more about, is something that hasn't come up like a Moore's law curve is software usability. Like if you compare a screenshot of the kind of tools we were using in 2004, so like if you're a developer, maybe like Dreamweaver (laughs) or like Salesforce (laughs) to tools today, like obviously there's been an aesthetic change, I would argue an aesthetic improvement, but Software is still really hard to use, and we're still facing the same challenges with the building blocks we were using in 2004, like hierarchical menus and users not knowing like what words to use, and then having to turn to like a right. long help center article to understand how to kind of like translate their the intent that's in their head into like the mouse and keystrokes mm-hmm. to achieve that thing in software. And that always flummoxed me with the products I was building, as I felt like you know I had this idea of how they could be used, but then users would get into the products and use, you know, 1% of the features and have to reach out to support a lot to get things done. So ultimately, that's why we started Command Bar because we felt like there was an opportunity to make software way easier to learn and use than um, Mm -hmm. what we were seeing. Yeah. So we talked about this last week, my co-host and I on the podcast. It was a video that came out, you know, which I think is being a little bit clickbait, a little bit provocative or whatever, but it's a, a lecture at a CS class in Harvard by someone named Dr. Matt Walsh, who is an academic, but also worked at Google and now has an AI startup, you know, large language models and the end of programming. And he made kind of a similar point to you, which is like, let's put together Conway's game of life. Here it is in Fortran. I just throw this up on the screen. Can any of you just read this? Probably. Okay. Now I'm going to do it in basic. Now I'm going to do it in Rust. Like, have we made any progress in making this easier and more intuitive for the average person or even someone with some programming skills to look at and and decipher? No. Okay, now I'm going to write this, you know, prompt for an AI to create this program. And if I shared that prompt with someone, would they understand what I was after? It's in plain English, you know? So I think I really relate to what you're saying. Um, Although that was more about on the um, programming, you know, language itself versus, you know, usability and design. So tell us a little bit about, yeah, like what was your first MVP um, that got you going with this? When you had the idea and then what was the first thing you built? The insight that we, we had this idea of what wasn't working, which was status quo. We felt like, you know, products were still pretty much as hard to use as they were in the early 2000s. And the like pinnacle of helping users was and still largely is something that everyone is familiar with through the internet, which is, you know, pop-ups. Like, there's obviously the kind of maligned pop-ups like ads, which you don't see that much anymore, like actual pop-up ads. But then there's the kind of like good guy pop-ups, which are intended to like grab the user's attention and tell them something that their company thinks they should know. So like classic experience, you log into a new product. So like whether that's like an HR tool in the B2B context, or, you know, maybe it's even like a social network in the B2C context. And you get a pop-up that's like, oh, we just launched a new feature or like new here, like let's take a tour. And unfortunately, I think the muscle memory that like everyone's learned 
and this is what we hear like talking to our customers and also just like feel as users is like how quickly do i close this pop-up because we just don't have the expectation that it's going to be helpful and so what we try to do is basically like recognize that there's a reason these things exist which is there's a ton shit ton tools they're hard to use but let's make sure to not make that mistake and make sure we can be not generic personalized and train users to kind of expect these things to be helpful so the first thing we started with was a natural language search bar for software the idea was let's just put a text box in front of users and get them to describe what they're trying to do in Mm -hmm. their own words this was before we were using llms and the idea was if we know what they're doing in their own words we can route them to the right place in the product where they can take Mm -hmm. that action so instead of them having to like navigate the file tree and figure out the right word that corresponded to their intent, they could just search and then we would route them to the right place. And then as the product developed, we added the ability to you know, perform actions straight from the search bar as well. So it became kind of like a natural language entry point to the entire product. So prior to, yeah, LLMs being really capable with natural language, and there being, you know, an API you can hit whenever you want from various providers. What was the back end that you were hoping to use or that you built yourself? We were using like old school semantic search. So mm-hmm. tried out a bunch of different services, a bunch of different algorithms, um, you know, synonyms, that kind of thing. Interestingly, uh, one of the key things that LLMs give us, in addition to, of course, like being able to respond to users in a personalized way, our flagship product today is a back and forth. Um, natural language interface versus search. We still have search, mm-hmm. makes sense in some contexts, but back and forth yeah. chat is a lot more popular. It also made it a lot mm-hmm. easier for our customers to turn the dials on how they want our products to work for them. So like very high level, mm-hmm. command bar is the layer that wraps on top of other products. So that could be like HR tool like Gusto, developer tool like HashiCorp. And then we allow the people building those products to inject experiences that help users right. learn and use those products. Right, right. So yeah, I mean, this makes total sense. Like to me, I remember one time I had to deal with some revenue stuff on the back end. I was working on sponsored content um, for that is in the marketing department, but now it's a revenue generating product and I had to go sign up for Looker and then there, you know, create a table here. I, I didn't know anything about Looker and they probably offered me a tutorial and I probably said no because my experience with <laughs> like all developers bad. Yeah. And maybe there was a little chat window at the bottom or a pop-up and I was just like, no, you know, like it has never been a good experience. And so what you're saying is I would have gone into Looker and I would have said, somebody has asked me to make, you know, a compound annual growth rate chart about revenue from the sponsored product line. Where should I start? And it would respond to me in natural language, but also guide me through the UI, UX to help me do it. Yeah, the second part is critical. So yes, you can build a natural language chatbot trained on your content with command bar. So take in, you know, help center videos, any content that exists that can help, could theoretically help users use your product, Mm. train a co-pilot on that stuff and you'll get out a chatbot. But we really wanted to go beyond just chat because it's still work to like read even like a terse personalized answer and then go into the UI and do that thing. So Copilot can do two things that go beyond just like basic rag chat. Sorry, I, I just have to stop you for one second. You keep saying Copilot. I fear that that's something that people just now associate. 
very slowly overloaded. with GitHub Copilot and, and Microsoft has said they call everything Copilot. So were you using that name prior to them or using that name alongside them? Like what what's what does Copilot mean when you say it? We've been using it alongside. For us, it's like one of our products that is the embedded user assistant. We have several like different experiences gotcha. that companies can use to influence users. Okay. But the natural language chat one is called Copilot. So yeah, when I usually when I'm referencing okay. Copilot, I'm talking about our, our copilot, but it is very overloaded and we'll we'll probably lose the copilot yeah. war eventually. Yes. Yes. The cease and desist on that on that trademark. It's kind of a goal of mine is to get the cease and desist because if we get that, we're doing something yeah. right. Yeah. You want to get noticed, right? So they send the CMB. Exactly. Okay. I got it. But anyway, yes, yeah, so like going back to kind of going beyond chat. So let's say a user asks, let's use your example. So you're in Looker and you say, like, how do I create a revenue Kager chart? So level one would be yeah. you get an answer, like just a summary of the help center. Level two is maybe you get text answer, but maybe it's a bit personalized to you. Like maybe you're on a plan that includes templates. And so it says like, oh, since you're on the growth plan, you can you know make sure to check out templates or something. So it's, it's still text, but it's like personalized to you. Right. The next level though is instead of just giving you a text answer, actually generating an interactive walkthrough that's in the UI that explains in your mm-hmm. account how to do that thing. So you're not just right. saying, here's some instructions. You're actually saying, let's go on a journey together in the product. Yeah. Goal is to teach the user how to do it next time. That's super cool. The Modus Toolbox lets you develop the way you want to develop with the workflow you get to define. Its development environment supports multiple IDEs, command line tools, and easily imports middleware libraries. Visit infineon.com slash Modus Toolbox Stack Overflow to try Modus Toolbox software today for free. Be sure to use that link and let them know the podcast sent you. And have you switched to an LLM on the background or are you still using your own proprietary? Yes, yeah, yeah, we're, we're using LLMs on the background. So since you switched to an LLM on the background, how do you, and I don't know if this is quite the right way to describe it there, but how do you make it multimodal in the sense of like, it's not just responding with a text response, it's knowing, you know, when to create a visual illustration, it's knowing when to click a button to take a user to a certain section or pop something up. Like, how does the non-textual piece of that work? So at a high level, there's like several different inputs. There's information about how the product works. That's, you know, the help center, the guides, the documentation, video transcripts, things like that. All that kind of goes into the, the soup that our co-pilot is trained on. Then another huge piece of what we do is tools like admin tools for companies to shape like what the purpose of their copilot instance is we kind of think about it Mm -hmm. as like our customers are employing copilot to do a job for them and that job Mm -hmm. is usually more specific than just like help users so it could be hey we're getting a lot of support tickets and we want to like help users help themselves could be like here's 10 parts of our product that we know are particularly confusing and we want to help users like get to the end of these flows could be when we right. want to convert more users to paid plans, whatever. That mm-hmm. tooling, the kind of goal setting, plays a huge role in what type of response Copilot gives. I'll give you a really concrete example. So there's always this tension in the response between showing the user how to do something in the user interface. So kind of like the walkthrough, generated right. walkthrough. Or an action which just kind of completes the task on behalf of the user. So like create a revenue chart that could either show you, you know, where to click and where to go to templates and maybe what template is relevant for you. 
or it could just open you to, it could, you know, on the, the back end, open you to a page with that template pre-selected and off you go. Maybe it asks you to like name the chart and then it creates it for you. Whether our co-pilot does the tour or the action depends a lot on the company's goals. Some companies care a lot gotcha. about training users to do things in the interface, especially if it's a repeated action. Other users yeah, yeah. care a lot about just enabling the user to get the thing done and then get out. And so whether yeah. Copilot responds with one thing or the other, a lot of the time we're relying on our customers' kind of goal setting to decide that. Right. And also what we've seen work. So like right. if a user is really confused by a tour, and we've seen that happen in, you know, with a similar query like four or five times, in that situation, we're probably not going to generate a tour. Yeah. And so uh, the interface that the customer would use to design these interactions within their own software, that's more of like a drag and drop, no code, low code, where they can sort yeah. of say like, if somebody asks X type of question or is, is curious about X type of functionality, I want you to respond with Y. Yeah, you can definitely get that specific. There are some like types of queries that customers want to really control, like what Copilot says or what it does in those situations. Right. There's another class of input, which is like what you described as sort of the explicit, like if this, then that, sort of like the old school style of chatbot right. editor. There's also kind of a middle ground, which is for this type of question, here is some stuff we want you to incorporate in the answer. Or when the user asks about this set of features, we really right. want to respond with a tour because we want to train them how to use these. So there's sort of like yeah. zooming in on the individual type of query and then they're sort of giving guidance for a class of queries. Right. And it's that second group that we find is a lot more effective because you can just cover way more of the like query space with that kind of like vaguer guidance than you can mm -hmm. with the, the old school building. But yeah, it's all no code. A big part of it is yeah. enabling anyone at a company to influence UX in the product. I'm thinking about this now in the context of I've been playing a lot of Baldur's Gate 3, which is like a super complicated RPG. And there's been Reddit threads and it's happened to me where it's like, well, I've, I've played this game from beginning to end already twice or once. I've invested 40 or 50 hours. I never knew that if you click this button over here, <laughs> like it toggles this thing and it makes, it makes life really easy. I used to take three steps to do that and it sucked. And now I know because I like some I saw it in some Reddit thread or somebody explained it. And it's like, right, like in that situation, it would be really nice to have a natural language search bar that I can pop up any time to say, like, is there a way to do this? And if so, it could respond with text, but even better, maybe an arrow and a highlight on the feature or, you know, a quick one, two, three, you click this menu to get to this sub menu, you know, to toggle this feature, which, you know, you only need one in a thousand times or whatever. Totally. It's a great example. I would actually argue that in, in your scenario, the kind of like most effective pattern would actually be something proactive before you kind of put... Because in that situation, unless you kind of know that, oh yeah, this, this flow feels kind of awkward and tortured, you might not put your hand up and be like, is there a better way to do this? So I would argue like right. the better pattern is if you see a user doing something suboptimal, proactively mm. nudge them, which is another part right, of our right. product, which same spirit, help users, right, right. but it's kind of like intercept yeah. a problem versus That's interesting. respond to their intent. Right. If you see me once, twice, three times, repeat something in three awkward steps where there's a one button that was meant to do that, you know, you could say, do you know? Are you aware of Exactly. That? It's kind of like just-in-time learning, which is right. what a lot of right. developers prefer. And it's, it's kind of how we build that, that loop of training users to expect these nudges to be useful. Like if you get, we've actually seen mm. in our user data, it's really interesting. If a user sees three pop-ups, you can build pop-ups in 
command bar. We do a lot to discourage you from doing the kind of like generic annoying style, but it's possible. What we see in our user data is if you show a pop-up to a user and three times in a row, they like quickly dismiss it because they judge it to be irrelevant, annoying, you basically lost the ability to show them pop-ups. You've trained them to right. close them out right. and assume they're not useful. So you have the ability to proactively, we call it nudge a user, but we try to only do it in situations where we really think the content will be relevant and personalized. So like in your case, it might be like you've done this thing three times. Let's at that point proactively nudge you and say, hey, there's a better way. It could be like, oh, based on the click patterns and the way the user is using the product, it really seems like they're confused. Let's like steer them to Copilot or let's show them a tutorial video when they appear to be confused, as opposed to the kind of more classic time to show a pop-up, which is like when you log in and maybe it's interrupting you from like actually exploring on your own. Right. So you mentioned a few companies as examples um, of folks who are using your stuff. Are there interesting examples that you think to software developers, designers, UX, UI people who are listening, they could go check out if they were, you know, like companies who are using your stuff and, and how it was deployed actually out to the public? Every company uses it in a slightly different way because like I was saying, there's, um, it really comes down to like what the company's trying to achieve. But yeah, I think one of the cooler things about our company is that we do work with companies that have very different types of users. So on the DevTools side, HashiCorp, LaunchDarkly, Netlify were some of our earlier customers. And a big kind of right. key there was developers usually don't like to be handheld in a very prescriptive way in new products. Like they're really good at reading the manual. They're really good at exploring on their own. But that doesn't mean right. they're always going to like figure out exactly how a product works. Like to your point, like video games, great example, like you can enjoy the game and get value out of it, but still not like master everything. And so that's where I think the right. ability to like put your hand up and say, I'm trying to do this. Is there a better way? Or, mm -hmm. you know, do just in time nudging can be mm -hmm. valuable. And we have companies that are using our product in a completely different way because they're serving like completely different users. Like Gusto is a good example. HR product users are primarily like small business owners. And, you know, they're way less fluent with modern software. And so a lot of that use case is more about helping them achieve things that they're struggling to do in the UI and otherwise would be like, calling Gusto support to figure out. It's kind of like, where right. in the product do I go to do this is the, is the key use right. case for, for them. Right. And there's a spectrum. Do you think that this will eventually be something that we come to expect at the OS level? To give you some examples, you know, when I'm on my Mac and occasionally, you know, there's something I want to do that I haven't done in a while. I've got some MIDI controller, you know, and I forgot how to, you know, reset the driver or something, you know, then I, mm -hmm. I search and help and I end up in settings and I try to find my way there. And it tries to guide me, but it usually, you know, doesn't provide deep guidance. Yeah. So in that situation, I could really use it. And then I, you know, I, I have parents and grandparents in my life who have iPhones, but, you know, are constantly being befuddled by them. And, you know, yeah. I meant to take a regular video, but I took a time lapse. Is there a way to change a time lapse back to a regular video? Well, yeah, there is. If you Google it and then take these like right. seven steps. But what if I could just say to the phone, I'd like to change this time lapse back to a regular and say, okay, you know, you can take these two steps. I'll show you where, or I can do that for you. Like, would you like me to do that? Right. I mean, do you, yeah, I guess the question is, do you think we're going to get there for, at the operating system level? And if so, what's it going to take? I think what you're describing is kind of like a, what we refer to as like a universal agent that's like, yeah. you know, wielding all software on behalf of users. Basically, the bet we're making is that 
you can build much more helpful agents by building mm-hmm. software specific agents. And a key right. part of that is you're working with the company building the software. So like yeah. when we partner with a company, we talk about like, what are all the different user archetypes? What are all the different jobs to be done? What are the friction points? Like what APIs, public and private, do we have at our disposal? What user data do we have? What we've seen is that allows you to build a co-pilot that's really good at helping users in that product. I think it would be a lot harder for a universal agent using right. only like publicly available information. No, no, I, I, to, I completely agree with you. I think I was I was referring to it maybe at like the iOS has one and Android has one. You know, right. and, and it's, it's for oh, within yeah. that context. I think, context. I think coexist. It's kind of like how Spotlight works today, right? Yeah, like exactly. on a Mac, it's allowing you yeah. to like jump into the application or you can do a few kind of yeah, generic exactly. things like like calculate stuff. Um, there are right. interesting tools like I use a tool called Raycast, um, which I love. It's kind of like a supercharged Spotlight. You can do things like, you know, unit conversions and stuff that you should be able to do in Spotlight yeah. that you can do in, in Raycast. I think those will have their place, yeah. but I think to do kind of actual work like in right. tools built by software companies, you yeah, benefit a lot from being able to work with the company. Yeah, yeah. No, that, that makes a ton of sense. Yeah, I mean, I think that's where we're headed, you know, where natural language is going to become the command line for most people and for most applications where it makes sense, right. you know, and maybe not a touch game or something like that. And it's really exciting to think about how far we've come from Clippy, you know, popping up <laughs> to tell me, did you know you can drag an image here in Microsoft Word, a supercharged version of Clippy that will be everywhere? That's basically what we're building. It's funny. I used to use the Clippy analogy and yeah. I would get blank stares. Oh, well, I'm old enough to get your Clippy I felt analogies. so old. I was like, are you really, <laughs> you really, you know, not lucky enough or, you know, unfortunate enough to have experienced Clippy? But yeah, I mean, that's basically what we're building, right. like a, a system yeah. that can proactively and also reactively help users. One thing you said that I think is interesting is the uh, question of whether like, and I actually brought this up at the beginning, whether all interfaces like trend towards a text box or a command line. And one thing I'm yeah. really excited about in the future of our product is today there's kind of like a pretty clear boundary between the copilot interface, our interface, chat, and then kind of a few discrete interfaces like copilot can render a survey to capture user information and can walk users through a workflow. But it's very text based. And then there's the underlying UI. And, you know, we can break through by generating a tour to like teach you how the UI works, but they're quite separate. Right. One thing I'm really excited about is the idea of kind of blurring that line, dynamically generating ephemeral interfaces, which are basically like mm-hmm. wizards, <laughs> just learning everything from Microsoft's, you know, 2000 design to help users yeah. achieve something specific, but that wizard can be personalized to them. So maybe it's like a table and a set of buttons for achieving your revenue kager. I don't think that this is a too far off dream. I mean, think about it. You know, when Greg Brockman did the demo where he drew a, a picture of a toy website and it built it, totally. You know, he said, I just want to do this one off thing. And it said, sure, I, I could take a stab at that with some HTML and CSS and JavaScript. And, you know, the latest version of Stable Diffusion is saying, as fast as you type, I'm going to try to, you know, generate the image for you. And so then, you know, totally. like if you had a reasoning engine that was like, you know, when a user is asking for something and they need to see it in the UI, this is how you generate, you know, arrows and motion and highlights, you know, to take them where they need to go. So yeah, I think that's a really cool idea and one that could come along. And, you know, yeah, we're, we're only beginning to understand how different modalities of interacting with LLMs, you know, open up new possibilities. For my kids who are super slow typers, 
ChatGPT got a lot more interesting when you could just talk to it. And now they're right. much more you know, liable to say like, I have a random question. And I'm like, I haven't had my coffee yet. Ask the Oracle, you know, and they will because, you know, typing was difficult, but just speaking to it is, you know, feels pretty facile to them. One of the things I'm really excited about is the feedback loop we'll get once we start getting dynamic interfaces in actual products. Like it'll be very clear to measure mm-hmm. this type of interface works really well for this user or this user type. It's right. kind of crazy today that, you know, product yeah. builders have to build like one interface to work for all different types of users. Yeah. I like that. I think it'll be a great, yeah, greatly for for UI UX. Hopefully we can move past the lone goal of maximizing time in app or Engagement, whatever. Engagement, yeah. Because <laughs> <yeah. laughs> uh, if it can change in real time to be personalized to me, to be an even more addictive UI UX, it's over for me. I'm yeah, done. and maybe you get to bring your own preferences. There's a guy on Twitter, Jeffrey Litt, who right. talks about end-user customized interfaces. I think that's a, the LLMs yeah. enable this whole new frontier. Yeah, cool. All right, everybody, it is that time of the show. Let's shout out someone who came on Stack Overflow and shared a little knowledge to help the community. Awarded November 24th to Ilias Karim. Why is Yarn 2, in quotes, Yarn 3.01? Why did Yarn not just call Yarn 2, Yarn 3, instead of calling Yarn 2? Well, if you've ever wondered, there's an answer here. It's been viewed over 8,000 times. So a lot of people did have this question and we have an answer that explains it. As always, I am Ben Popper. I'm the director of content here at Stack Overflow. Find me on X at Ben Popper. If you want to come on the show or you have questions and suggestions for the program, hit us up, podcast at Stack Overflow. And if you like the show, the nicest thing you could do would be to leave us a rating and a review. Yeah, I'm James Evans. Thanks for having me. Uh, Commember.com. It's my life's work. And then I'm on uh, Twitter as at Dazzaloid. All right, everybody. Thanks for listening. And we will talk to you soon.